So Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achaelus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Good morning. Great to see you. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors at the church. You move that over there. Great to be with you. Uh, and it is only a few days to Christmas. How exciting. Um, it is one of my favourite times of year. Uh, and I quite like getting into all the traditions at this time of year, all the Christmassy stuff uh, with only a few days to go. One thing Annika and I quite like to do uh, around this time of year is to sit down and watch a few Christmas movies. You guys watch Christmas movies? There's the classics, of course. There's, what is there? There's uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Miracle on 34th Street, Home Alone, Home Alone 2. Um, I'm only three, four. Well, I like three, actually. Um, I don't know if you've actually noticed, though, uh, lately, especially with all the streaming TV kind of thing that uh, happens these days, Netflix and that sort of thing, um, all these companies are just making Christmas movie after Christmas movie after Christmas movie after Christmas movie. And there are literally hundreds of low-quality Christmas movies out there that you can watch. makes it quite hard to find anything good, really. I actually sat down the other day on my TV and had a search for Christmas to see what sort of Christmas movies would come up, the sort of options that I had to watch. Uh, let me show you actually some of the Christmas movies that um, you might be able to watch if you wanted to. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't watched all of these, by the way, but uh, let's see. There's The Spirit of Christmas, The Christmas Star, 12 Dates of Christmas, A Puppy for Christmas, uh, The Christmas Calendar, A Magic Christmas, The Dog Who Saved Christmas... Actually, would quite like to watch that one. Uh, Married by Christmas, of course. Don't worry, I've got plenty more. Um, a Christmas Aunt, Christmas in Vermont, a Californian Christmas, Christmas in Compton, a New York Christmas wedding, a Christmas crush, a uh, puppy's crash Christmas, a Christmas moose miracle, a Christmas prince, that one I have seen, um, a country Christmas, whoop, next page, a country Christmas, Christmas catch, the, prin- uh, the princess switch, uh, a Christmas prince, the royal wedding, Nice. A Christmas Inn, A Christmas Prince, The Royal Baby. 
Uh, Operation Christmas Drop, A Wish for Christmas, and finally, A Christmas Movie Christmas. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Let's get those up the screen. Why am I, why am I showing you those? Well, uh, now you've got some ideas for what to watch on TV tonight, of course, but uh, I just want to ask, even seeing the titles of all the Christmas movies, what do you notice about the vibe? The vibe, because I think this shows us actually something uh, that we can often see at Christmas, something of how we can see Christmas in our society. What do you notice about the vibe and how we like to tell Christmas sorts of stories in our society today? Fun, maybe, uh, maybe a bit silly, uh, romantic, maybe, lighthearted, kind of shallow, but certainly happy, happy movies. Of course, things go wrong in the movies. Normally, it's just that the character from the big city struggles to connect with their old hometown or something like that. Uh, but I think... This is the vibe we often give to Christmas. It's a happy time of year, lighthearted, celebratory. And actually, even as Christians, I think this is how we think of the Christmas story, a nice story of Mary and Joseph, the baby Jesus, the wise men. You know, you know at Easter time, we're kind of used to kind of Good Friday, remembering the sadness mixed with the happiness of Easter Sunday. But at Christmas, we kind of think it's all a positive, happy, nice story. A passage we've read out this morning kind of blows that happy Christmas vibe out of the water, doesn't it? If today's passage was a Christmas movie, what would you call it? The Christmas slaughter? The Christmas refugee? Doesn't exactly fit in with the kind of merry Christmas sort of vibe, does it? I mean, imagine for a minute being in Bethlehem on that night that Herod's soldiers came into town and went from house to house to kill every young boy under the age of two. What's the carol? I I think we sang it last week. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Uh, I don't think anyone would have been sleeping well in Bethlehem that night. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. How loud the screams would have been and the wailing. And today's passage we're going to be looking at the dark side of the Christmas story, part of the Christmas story that maybe we don't like to read quite so often and we might not be excited about looking at this harder, darker part of the Christmas story Uh, but I think actually in a year like 2020 I think the dark side of the Christmas story is actually what we need because there is a lot of darkness in the world at the moment Around eight to 10,000 people have been dying every single day of COVID the last few weeks. We're super aware of injustice and racism and slavery and trafficking and inequality around the world. We are in an evil world, aren't we? And of course, evil happens globally on a global scale. It happens locally. I, I was thinking about this sermon in the car the other day. And as I was thinking about it, two ambulances screamed right past me. Um, Hopefully they actually went and saved a life or did something really helpful. But it reminded me of how many people in our city will deal with tragedies this Christmas. Current tragedies or perhaps just memories of tragedies past. A lot of people like Christmas because it's almost an escape from the evil around us. You know, we sit down and watch the Christmas wish. Here's what I want us to see today. The real Christmas story isn't an escape. It takes place in the midst of evil. It causes us to confront evil. It shows us what God's doing about evil. And it gives us the key to finding joy as we live in a world full of evil. 
It's incredibly relevant. I think actually it's the Christmas story that we need for a year like 2020. So let's, let's think about our passage. I've pulled out three points for us, three things that I think it's helpful to notice. I'll put these up on the screen. We go three things to notice, although there's really six things because each is a pair of two. Uh, I want us to notice in the passage today, we've got two rulers. Number one, we have two sons. Number two, and we have two choices. Number three, two rulers, two sons, two choices. Uh, So first, two rulers to notice in our passage today. The first of our rulers is King Herod. If you were with us last week, we kind of started the story of King Herod. We were introduced to Herod. Herod was the king of Israel at the time that Jesus was born, although it should be uh, noted that he still had to submit to the Roman emperor, so he wasn't sort of like a total sovereign king. Uh, Herod, he's ruling in Israel, and the wise men, or the magi, as they're sometimes called, come along, and they tell Herod that they're about to visit a new king, and Herod, he likes being king, so when he hears that there might be another king, he's not too happy. And so Herod hatches a plan, uh, plan A is that he wants the wise men to go off and uh, find Jesus and then come back and tell him where Jesus is so that Herod can go and kill him. Um, but the wise men get warned in a dream to go back to their own country without seeing Herod. Um, so Herod has to come up with plan B. And we'll see what happens in plan B in verse 16 of our passage today. Verse 16 says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. The passage you looked at last week, Herod had asked the wise men when they'd seen the star rise, uh, when they'd they'd seen the star and came to Israel. And based on the information, he makes the decision to go and kill all the boys under the age of two so, uh, so that he can definitely make sure he takes Jesus out. And we can probably deduce then that Um, We're actually likely well past Christmas. It might be a year, it might be a year and a half after Jesus has been born. Um, If you've met my daughter Lucy, she's 20 months, a year and three quarters. Uh, So perhaps Jesus could have been that sort of age at the time. It's horrible to think of all the boys that age being killed, isn't it? Uh, Records of population in the area at the time would show us that we're probably talking about uh, around 20 boys, give or take, statistically speaking. Uh, It really is a dark gruesome story. It's hard to imagine how even an evil king like King Herod uh, would do such a cruel thing. Although actually, if you know anything about King Herod, uh, this is very much in character for this guy. He was a king who had killed 46 of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was sort of the Jewish sort of religious parliament. So he sort of went to the parliament and killed roughly half of the Jewish parliament. Actually, this is a king who decided that he couldn't trust his own wife and had her put to death. Uh, This is a king who decided he couldn't trust his own sons and had his own sons put to death. Actually, the Roman emperor Augustus was asked at one point about King Herod and he said he'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son because chances are you would live longer. Herod's evil, no doubt. I think we could probably also describe King Herod as pretty paranoid uh, and insecure. I mean, killing his own family members, I mean... What kind of king actually hears rumours about a baby who might grow up to be a king and then feels threatened enough to go and take out the baby? I mean, it's actually kind of pathetic, really. When he was getting closer to death, King Herod, 
he was actually worried that when he died that people wouldn't mourn him. And so he gave orders to gather together all the leaders uh, of the country, all the most important officials, and to take all the important officials and put them in a room together. And then he gave the order that as soon as he died, all those officials should be put to death too, just to make sure there was sufficient mourning in the country. It's shocking, isn't it? funny thing is, uh, maybe it's not the funny thing, but uh, the funny thing is, as soon as Herod died, the ones who were ordered to kill everyone suddenly realized, well, Herod's dead now. I don't actually need to, we don't need to listen to him anymore. And they actually, they didn't go through with it. They let everyone go. Seconds after Herod had died and his power was already gone. If we contrast this to the other ruler in our passage, the Lord God, whereas Herod is insecure, paranoid, and ultimately his power is pretty limited, what comes through very clearly in this passage is that God is totally in control. Matthew actually shapes this little passage that we've had read around three kind of sections, three uh, fulfillments, we might call them. Uh, The first section, verses 13 to 15, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they're warned uh, by God to flee to Egypt and they leave during the night Verse 14 says, I think if it was me, I'd be tempted to wait till morning. But Mary and Joseph obey. They obey straight away. And this happened, verse 15, to fulfill what the Lord God had said through his prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. See, Herod had not stopped God's plans. Herod had not thwarted God's plans. God is totally in control. And then the second section, verses 16 to 18, which we've already had a look at, uh, it's about Herod and the massacre of the children in Bethlehem. Again, it's a terrible, tragic thing, but again, this does not destroy God's plans. In fact, it fulfills what is prophesied in Jeremiah. Verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And then our final section deals with Mary and Joseph. They come back from Egypt Did you pick up what was kind of going on? They wanted to come back to Judea and Bethlehem and live there, um, even though Joseph was originally from Galilee. But because Herod's son is now ruling, and Herod's son was just as violent as his father, they decide to go further north and live in Nazareth. And again, Matthew is very keen to tell us God is totally in control. So what was fulfilled, what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Verse 23. Two rulers in our passage, one who seems very powerful, King Herod, he can put people to death whenever he wants, but as we've seen, I think actually he's relatively paranoid and insecure and and almost kind of pathetic. In contrast to Herod is the Lord God, true control, true power, things playing out according to his plan. Of course, it's a good reminder for us today that God is still totally in control. He's still God. And as we see evil things around the world, like pandemics and injustice, it's easier to feel like the world is in chaos. Yet the reminder is to continue to trust God. Things like COVID will not get in the way of his plans. But of course, the obvious question to ask as we see evil in the world, as we read of the evil in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, as we see and experience evil around the world today, the obvious question is, what's, what's God doing about it? Why isn't he stopping it? If God is in control, then what is he doing about this evil? And I think the answer to that question is right here in our passage too. Let's go on to our second point. 
two sons. It's a little harder to see this point, and I think it takes a little bit of extra thinking, so do try and come along with me. It's all to do with verse 15. Let's, let's put verse 15 up on the screen. This is at the end of that first fulfillment section where Joseph, Mary, and Jesus have fled to Egypt. It says, And so what was fulfilled, what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now those last few words, of course, are a quote. As you can see, it's from the Old Testament. I expect most of your Bibles will have a footnote uh, which will tell you where the quote's from. It's from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now if you're a kind of extra spiritual sort of Christian, uh, what you might do occasionally when you get to passages like this is you might actually go and look up Hosea 11.1 1 and have a look at where the quote came from, um, just out of interest, just to do some extra study. And, and let's, let's do that this morning because I think this is an important quote. Let's be those extra spiritual Christians for a minute. Um, Hosea 11.1, 1, let's put it up on the screen. Now what we might expect to see is when we come to uh, something like Hosea, given what Matthew's told us, is we might expect Hosea to say something like, ah, the Messiah is going to come out of Egypt. That's maybe what you would expect, something like that. But what do we actually see? Hosea 11.1, 1, this is God speaking. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's the quote. What do you notice? I think I notice it doesn't really seem to be about the Messiah at all. In fact, It doesn't even seem to be a prophecy. It's God talking about how he had brought his people out of Egypt thousands of years before, back in the book of Exodus. God's God's son here isn't Jesus, it's his people Israel. Interesting. In the Old Testament, actually, it's quite normal, and we find it in a number of spots, that God refers to his people as his son. Israel is God's son. And God brought his people out of Egypt, as it says here, God saved the people from himself, he saved them from Egypt, and he called them to be a blessing to others. Uh, He called them to be a people of justice, a people who would take in outsiders and refugees and help them. So what God was doing about the evil in the world, well, in the Old Testament, what God was doing about the evil in the world is he was taking a people, a nation, and that people was going to be his way of doing something about evil. God's people, Israel, were God's plan to do something about the evil in the world and to bring blessing. But unfortunately, as it says in our very next verse in Hosea, Hosea 11.2, the more they were called, the more they went away from God. They sacrificed to Baals and burned incense to images. God saved his people, brought them to the promised land, gave them everything they needed to be a blessing to others. And yet again and again, they turned away from God They failed at bringing justice. They failed at bringing blessing. They lied. They cheated. They murdered. It's the reason why evil was in the world back then. It's the reason for so much of the evil in the world today. As humans, we fail again and again to live the way God has intended for us. What does Matthew say about Hosea 11.1? He applies it to Jesus. Israel God's son had failed at being God's blessing to the world. And so God stepped into the world himself as the other of our two sons, as God's own son, Jesus. And in many ways, Jesus, we can actually think of him as the true Israel. He went to Egypt. 
came out and whereas Israel spent 40 years wandering the desert, Jesus spent 40 days. Whereas Israel got to the promised land and constantly failed to live God's way, Jesus was fully and totally righteous. Whereas Israel brought sin and evil and darkness, Jesus brought blessing and hope and light. Yet, of course, Jesus, who was innocent, still experienced the world's evil. He had to flee in the night with his parents to Egypt. He had to go and live in a backwater like Nazareth, despised, rejected. Ultimately, of course, Jesus was executed on the cross, in some ways the ultimate act of evil. Which, like the evil at Bethlehem, and which, like the evil of today, is still within God's control and plans. But God chose to go to the cross so that those of us who are part of the evil world, you and I, God went to the cross so that those of us who are part of the evil world could be spared God's punishment. God went to the cross so that the punishment could be put onto him instead. You see, God is not a God who stands back and does nothing about evil. He put his people into the world, his people Israel, his son, into the world to do something about evil and Ultimately, he dealt with evil in his son, Jesus. And what that leaves us with is our third point. Two rulers, two sons, two choices. I don't know how you feel about the evil in the world. Maybe you don't like to think about it too much. Maybe you, maybe you really feel the evil of the world around us. Well, today I hope you've seen that the real story of Christmas isn't a story that brushes over evil. It's not a light-hearted Christmas movie. It doesn't brush over the evil in the world. It doesn't brush over the evil you might be experiencing at the moment. This is a Christmas story for those who are distressed. This is a Christmas story for those who have experienced evil. It's a story that makes us look evil right in the eyes and ask ourselves how we will respond. And I think at the ba- basic level, there are two choices, two ways we might respond and deal with the evil in the world. The first way, uh, well, actually, I, th- I think we could even call it uh, the first choice, responding to evil the way that Herod did, the way of Herod. Not to say that everyone who responds to evil in this way uh, ends up committing atrocities or anything like that. But I think ultimately, how did Herod think about evil? I want to say Herod, I think he thought about evil a little bit like this. Here we go. Herod in a bubble. Not actually Herod. He wrapped himself in a bubble. He had a nice life in his palace. He had the power to keep threats away. He wanted to stay in his safe little bubble. He might even have been the type of guy who would happily watch a little Christmas movie like The Christmas Prince, pretend the world is all happy and safe and keep away the negativity. His problem, of course, was that he was so totally insecure, he wanted to keep everything away that could possibly bring evil into his little bubble. And so when his wife, he thought, might be a threat, he killed her. And when he realized his sons could be a threat, he killed them. And even a random baby on the other side of the country could make him feel threatened enough to send out his soldiers. Of course, none of us are like Herod. A big part of the difference, of course, might be that he had a lot more power than any of us have. Uh, I think we can still be pretty good at either, uh, still uh, trying to pretend, either pretend that evil isn't there, or maybe do everything in our power to control the evil, trying to keep it away from us. 
Even good things like trying to make the world a better place and uh, things like activism can come deep down from a heart like Herod's where we just can't handle that there's evil in the world. There's nothing wrong, of course, with trying to do good and there's nothing wrong with trying to make the world a better place. I'm uh, I'm not trying to say that we're anything like Herod really except to say that when it comes to evil, our hearts can be full of insecurity. We can be full of fear. We can be full of that feeling of being out of control, wishing we could be in control of all the things in the world so that there would no longer be any evil. I think COVID this year just exposed how little control we really have. Now, I said we have two choices. So what's the second way we can think about the evil in the world? Well, I think it's the way that Matthew thinks about evil as he writes this Christmas story. He doesn't hide away from evil. He tells us the story with all the gory details. He doesn't give us an escape from evil. He looks evil right in the eyes and reminds us that God is the one who is in control and dealing with evil. He doesn't tell us to try and control the evil around us. He encourages us to remember that God is the one who is in control. And God's plan to deal with evil is no longer based on human effort. It's entirely based on Jesus. Jesus was the true Israel. He lived God's way. He died to deal with evil once and for all. And now if you're going to follow the way of Jesus, it may well mean you don't have that protective bubble around you. Jesus was the outsider. He was the refugee. He was the outcast. And if we follow the way of Jesus, I think we should expect that this might sometimes be the reality for us too. Um, you, You can hear some preachers around the world who might say, if you follow Jesus, you should expect blessing and money and prosperity, expect to be able to keep evil away from you. I don't think people like that have read this part of the Christmas story. One thing I think Herod got right is that Jesus is a serious threat. He wasn't being paranoid. Jesus threatens our notions of security. Jesus threatens our ability to keep evil at arm's length. If you're going to be one of his people, if you're going to be a citizen of his city, well, just look what happened to the citizens of his city in Bethlehem. We didn't get time to properly uh, dig into it, but uh, we did read this quote before from verse 18. Uh, This is about the slaughter of the kids in Bethlehem. Prophecy from Jeremiah. The verse says, A voice is heard in Ramah weeping a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew uses these emotional words to talk about the pain that Bethlehem went through. Uh, But originally, if we were going to do that extra spiritual thing and go back and see where the quote comes from in the Old Testament. Uh, This quote was originally a description of the pain that God's people dealt with as they were taken off to exile in Babylon. They're taken away from the promised land, taken to be captives in a foreign country. The New Testament tells us again and again that as God's people in the world today, we are still exiles. We've been taken away. We're living in a place that is not our home. So we shouldn't be surprised that there is evil and suffering in the real world around us. But the promise of Jesus is that having dealt with evil on the cross, he will one day bring us out of exile. He will one day bring us to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Because that is God's ultimate plan for dealing with evil in the world. Through Jesus, he will bring us to a new world where those things are done away with forever now if you believe that as a christian you you can be okay 
that bad things might happen now. You can be secure because you know that your place in this new world is secure. Nothing can take it away from you. If you want to find joy in the darkness of this world, I think the ultimate answer is to look to God's promises. Those preachers who might tell you to expect money and blessing and healing, well, they don't get things totally wrong. They mainly to stuff up the timing. God promises those things, but he doesn't promise them for now. He promises them for the new heavens and the new earth, for the new world. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, the Apostle Peter tells us that though we may experience evil now, we have in heaven for us an inheritance. An inheritance that is totally secure and can never spoil, perish or fade. The Christmas story that we've looked at today doesn't shy away from the evil we experience. It makes us confront it, encourages us to look it right in the eyes. But it reminds us that God's plan to do something about evil isn't centred around us. It's centred around his son, Jesus, and it's centred around his promise of a new heavens and a new earth. If you want to find joy, even when the world around us is so dark... You can try and pretend evil isn't there. You can try and keep evil away from you. You can see the evil. Trust in Jesus and God, who we know is dealing with it. Trust in his promises to bring those of us who follow him into the world where evil will be done away with for good. Let me pray for us. Our dear Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this hard passage today in some ways we might prefer the happier parts of the christmas story the escape from the evils of this world rather than the story which puts evil right in front of us but we thank you because ultimately we can't pretend evil isn't there forever we thank you that your plans are sure that you dealt with evil in jesus and that one day it will be done away with forever As we approach Christmas this year, I particularly pray for those of us who might be feeling the evils of this world. Help us to trust in these truths. Help us to find joy in knowing what Christ has done. And we pray in his name this morning. Amen.